0: Hello, this is Carl Santos, Senior Pastor at Redeemer Church in Niagara Falls. Now this is a midweek sermon that we are releasing because in order to get through the book of Revelation before the end of the summer, we have to rush the schedule a little bit. And that means I'll be releasing a couple of times uh, midweek sermons. Last week, just a couple of days ago, I preached on chapter 13 of Revelation on Sunday. This is a sermon on chapter 14. Now you may hear sounds of nature now and throughout this sermon, and that's because I am at home with the kids all week, and it's quite noisy in our home, so I'm recording this in our backyard by our fire pit. And so you may hear dogs, you may hear noises of things, uh, and um, that's just what's going to happen. So sit back, enjoy, and um, really engage with chapter 14 with me. It's It's a wonderful chapter. So we're going to read Revelation 14, verse 1, all the way to 15, verse 4. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who His name, who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their lamps, or harps. I saw another angel flying directly overhead, and an e- with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up for ever and ever Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress, of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for sixteen hundred stadia. Then, I saw another sign in heaven: the great, uh, great, and amazing seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For them, with them, the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed." So in chapter 12, we're introduced to this dragon, and he is bent on harming and hindering the people of God. Then in chapter 13, we're introduced to how the dragon does this, how he harms and hinders the people of God, and he does it namely through these two beasts that manipulate state power and religious power for his own purposes to deceive the world to worship the beast instead of worshiping God. And now in chapter 14, what we see is almost like a parallel, as if chapter 14 is laid over chapter 12 and 13. It's to say, while the beast is deceiving, God is at work through his church and through his angels doing this, doing this other thing. And specifically what God is doing is he is guiding the followers of the lamb to subvert the dragon's agenda through radically subversive worship. Now, The passage is arranged quite simply. It actually looks quite mundane when you look at it. So, you know, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, um, which seems pretty boring. But the beginning and the ends are connected. And so the passage is arranged with bookends. So the first five verses of chapter 14 and the first four verses of chapter 15 serve as bookends that flank this middle section. Okay, And the middle section tells us what the message, the subversive message of the people of God is the bookends tell us how the what the subversive lives are that the people of god are to live how this how they're to live subversively in this culture and then in the middle there as well at the end when it talks about harvests, we're going to look back at that at the end and see the subversive power that we are given to be the subversive people of god okay so with that, let's jump in and first look at the subversive message, so the middle section. This is chapter 14, verses 6 to 20. So we can break this down pretty simply. It's uh, In these verses, there's three angels that show up with different messages, and then there's two harvests at the end. So first we're going to look at these three angels and the message that they bring, because this message is the message of the gospel, and it is the message that God gives His, his angels to To communicate and declare throughout the earth, and, he, and they do it primarily through the church, through the people of God, through the followers of the Lamb, the 144,000. So first, let's ask this question. Who are these angels? So there's no reason to think that John doesn't actually see angels in his vision. But given what we've just been told about how the dragon will use the people and things and institutions of the earth to accomplish his goal, and he will manipulate those things through these celestial beings, his beasts, it's, I think, logical to assume that these angels are the ministers of God, real angels, that are tasked with um, declaring a clear message to the world about who God is and, and the judgment to come, and that they do it primarily through the work of the church and the work of the people of God. And if that's the case, then what is this message that they have? And let's look at them in in order they come, because each angel brings a different message, but they all are part of this eternal gospel, okay? That's the gospel message. But they all offer different perspectives, and those are helpful. And we're going to look at those messages and see how they're subversive, how the message that we as Christians share in this time of deception and lies and deceit, how is it subverting, the world and the mission of the dragon towards the mission of the lamb so the first angel this angel brings what i've just said is called the eternal gospel and that means it's unchanging it's ancient and therefore you only reject it at great risk to yourself because it is true and notice of course that this message is the um, is given to the same people that the beast has authority over in chapter 13 verse 7 In chapter 13, we learn that the beast has authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And now, interestingly, the angel comes and he has a message for every nation, tribe, people, and so on, the exact same people. And what it means is that these two messages, one of deception, one of the gospel, are both being declared at the same time in the world to the same people. And so, the great question of not just this chapter, but of all of Revelation and all of Scripture is, Who will you worship? We're given a choice. And the choices are laid out very clear. Beast, lamb, lie or truth. No gospel or gospel. And so this first angel comes and they all come with this eternal gospel. And now recall that when John ate the the book, remember he's given the scroll in chapter 10. He's told to eat it and he's told that the message he will give that, that comes out of the scroll is sweet to him but bitter to the world and so it is here that this eternal gospel is sweet to those who accept it who have ears to hear or as it were mouths to taste but it's also bitter to those who reject it and here we're seeing i think primarily anyway the bitterness of the gospel for those who deceive who are deceived by the beast and the message is in verse 7 fear god and give him glory because the hour of judgment of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. Now, the angel's message makes a demand on the people's worldview. And what I mean by that is this. Today, Canadians believe that nothing created the cosmos. They believe that they have uh, the greatest fear that they have is not is is a loss of personal freedom, right? So nobody created the cosmos. Personal freedom is the great thing to be um to be preserved. And they will give their worship to no one but themselves. Okay, this is kind of the basic Canadian's uh, worldview. And how often, of course, have you heard someone even say something like, I need to follow my heart. I have to do what's best for me. You know, Um, but the eternal gospel comes and it pushes against this deep-held view that most Canadians have and most of us had or maybe even still have lingering. And the gospel says, no, no cosmos isn't created by nothing. It's created by God. And as a result, everything owes its existence and its obedience to God. The gospel says that, it is our gre- uh, that our greatest worry should be the state of our souls, not the state of our personal freedoms. It also says that all of our attention and adoration should be focused on God and not ourselves. And so you see, this aspect of the gospel is radically subversive because it undermines the foundations that the empire of the empire that the beast has built here in Canada. It tells the world that things are not as they seem and not as they believe them to be. And anything that we declare, anything in the world actually, that gets to the root of what we believe and cherish will be very difficult to accept. And as a result, those of us who have this message should expect not only hostility and a lot of questions, but we should approach people with the gospel with a great deal of humility and compassion remembering how jarring the gospel was when we first heard it because the gospel the reason it's hated is because it is completely contrary to human nature and as a result it'll not be accepted easily so we need to remember that that's the first message okay that god is sovereign that's a that's that's a big big thing So that's one aspect of this message that we have, this subversive message. The second part comes from the second angel, and he comes declaring, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, this is another powerfully subversive statement. Babylon was essentially a code word for immorality in the ancient world and certainly to the Jews. Now, the spirit of Babylon was one of not merely oppression, but of sensuality. The idea that life is, uh, is simply for satisfying our lust for pleasure, and that we should drink deeply of life's finer things, you know, wine, women, and song, whenever we can, is, is a Babylonian idea, at least that's the way it's symbolized in the Bible. You know, and in Canada, I anecdotally speaking anyway, I don't think that Canadians in generally um, live for debauchery. They wouldn't see it that way. They don't say, uh, most Canadians don't wake up saying, boy, I can't wait. I'm just going to spend my whole day having, you know, getting drunk and partying and having orgies. That's, that's just not the way Canadians think. We don't want to, to slander Canadians that way. It's not That's not the way we think. But what I think I've noticed in my, uh, my 40 years here living here is they do want and we do want to have enough money, time and opportunity to satisfy whatever longings we do have and that and that we think that we have the right to do so. This is a very, very common thing. And again, those the things may not be wine, women and song, but we may say, you know, I should have the right to have leisure time to pursue whatever hobby I like. I should have the right to do with my life as I choose. And this idea is rooted in pursuing what we want to pursue. And now the message that the followers of the Lamb have is radically subversive because we come saying, no, no, that worldview of following your passions and pleasures is actually dead, and it leads to destruction. The, the message of God and the message of, the, of us, of the disciples, is that we're made to worship and mimic God by living sacrificially for others. Laying aside our self-interest in order to serve others and make them the people God is calling them to Just last week the CBC reported that um, in Toronto there has been a 20% drop in the number of volunteers um, Serving in community groups across the city versus last year And this is a big problem because the places that need volunteers like food banks and soup kitchens are seeing a spike in demand So while more people are using these ministries and resources, we're seeing less and less people actually serving at them. And that's obviously a problem. But this isn't a new trend. Um, Pardon the birds you hear (laughs) crowing around me. Um, This isn't a new trend. Sociologists have long noted that Canadians and North Americans and Westerners in general have been donating time and money less and less over the last many decades And so we've been trending away from social work and more towards personal ones. And so our message is undermining this growing trend towards individuality and selfishness that the culture is seeing. And so our message is subversive there. Now the third angel comes and he has the longest message. It says basically that any who accept the lies of the beast and and take them into their heart and into their lives, so they don't just believe them intellectually, but live out the beast's commands that they're guilty of rebellion and they're subject to eternal punishment now this is hard for canadians the for a number of reasons one of course is of course it's just it's just brutal it sounds so brutal it says that there's torture for those deemed guilty of rebelling against the holy god and that's brutal it's archaic to the modern canadian mind it sounds so primitive and so so bestial you know um but i think it's also very hard because it challenges a fundamental belief we have again. And that is, it comes to us, this message of the gospel comes and says, there is a wrong way to live, think, and behave. See, we live at a time in human history when there is nothing wrong with anything, except telling somebody that they're wrong. You see, the greatest sin you can commit in in modern Canada and current Canada is to go to somebody and say, hey, the way you are living, The way the things you are supporting, the things you are doing, are wrong, and to do that is very, very offensive. When anyone dares to tell us how we spend our time, or our money, or free time, uh, um, or how who we choose to sleep with, or or that the people or things we choose to support are wrong, the immediate guttural response is to say, "How dare you? (laughs) How dare you tell me that what I am thinking and doing with my life is wrong?" Who are you to say that? But the eternal gospel comes and subverts this naivete and this arrogance and says, no, but there is a right and a wrong way to live and how to think. And this is a great affront to modern secular individualism and libertarianism. And so we need to realize this, that the message that we bring as the followers of the Lamb will make us enemies of the culture. And so, um, again, we should expect people to struggle when they hear it. And we should expect to have to respond compassionately and with understanding. We should expect to have lots of questions asked of us and of our worldview and to have to answer a lot of questions and to give answers and to have a lot of coffees and discussions. Um, if, if we just scoff at the world for not accepting the gospel and then just wa- dust our hands off and walk away immediately, then I think we miss the point. We, we should be realizing that what we are saying to the world is radically challenging. Everything they have grown up thinking and believing and being told is being undone by the Spirit and by the gospel. And we should expect it to be hard work. And we would, I think we do well to remember how jarring it was for us when we heard the gospel at first. Now, the message of the church is never going to be widely accepted. You know, it's never going to be cool to be a Christian. So my suggestion for not just Redeemer, but for every church is stop trying to make this the case. Stop trying to make Christianity cool. Except that we were subverted by the gospel and the spirit and dragged out of the world. You know, they, God came in, broke in on us, chose us, subverted and undermined all the things we believed and won us to himself. And now we are called to be those agents of subversion, if you want to use that language, in the world, And we are tasked with subverting others by undermining the foundations that they build their lives on and replacing them with the gospel. And we should accept that we have a hard message, but a glorious one. And that should make us really, really passionate about our message. So we have a subversive message, but we also have these subversive lives. And here we look at those bookends, those verses, chapter 14, verse one to five, and then the first four verses of chapter 15. Now, summarize very quickly what you see in those two scenes is Jesus on Mount Zion. So he is there and he's surrounded by his 144,000, the people he has uh, marked and kept for himself. And these are people who are known by certain characteristics. They are ones who have not listened to the beast. They have remained faithful to God. They are ones who then, out of joy and gratitude, sing a brand new song. It says a new song, but it's a song of Moses, a new song like the song of Moses. It's basically praise and worship. And this is what we see. But in this description of what John sees, we find keys to how the followers of the Lamb, how we Christians, disciples, are to live lives that are subversive, um, are as subversive as the message that we have as well. And they give us a blueprint, actually, for what a subversive life of a disciple looks like. So let me go through them, and I'm just going through some of them. And I'll just use the, the, as they show up to us in the passage, and I'll read the verse, and then we'll just talk, I'll mention, talk about what they mean. So the first characteristic of a disciple is they have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. This is verse 4 of chapter 14. Now, taken literally, uh, as many people have in the history of the church, it can, we can assume it refers to celibacy, right? But this misses the point. We're not to think about this as celibacy because, of course, then that would be another problem because it would suggest that the only people who are saved are men because it speaks about not um, defiling themselves with women and so on. But we miss the point uh, when we do that. The point is it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. After all, uh, well, obviously, it's not just men that are saved. So it is a metaphor. And what is it for? Well, all through Scripture it's a metaphor of uh, spiritual adultery is... is uh, spiritual unfaithfulness to god is seen as adultery and it's always described that way and so to remain faithful to be a virgin is to be innocent of complicity and participation in a relationship with the beast so we are people who are to live lives disciplined uh of disciplined faithfulness to god you know why and why do we do this well verse 3 says because we're redeemed We know that we are not our own. We've been bought for a price. We belong to another body and soul. And so we should have no desire to be unfaithful. And of course, how subversive is a life of faithfulness and a life of virtue today? See, in the old days, the measure of a man, uh, of of a good human being, a gentleman even, was the extent to which they were able to suppress their lusts and their urges and instead choose virtue. So the measure of a good man was a man who could resist the desire to always be fighting and at war and could instead use diplomacy and peace and wisdom. It was, the measure of a man was not a man who jumped into bed with every woman he saw, but was a man who could um, could cool his raging motions, uh, as um, Shakespeare says. But today it's quite the opposite, isn't it? The measure of a man now is a man who can fight and win, a man who can bed as many women and succeed and, and conquer. And so... A life of virtue is radically subversive today. And that's the first thing that we are to live, lives of virtue. The second thing is when he says, these have been redeemed, those people, us, the church, have been redeemed for mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. Now, the language of first fruits suggests that we are a sacrifice. First fruits were given as a way to say, here's my best. I'm giving you the first things that come up out of my garden, and I trust that even though the rest hasn't come up yet, I trust that it will come up because you are my, my faith. I have faith in you, my success, my, my survival is all rooted in your faithfulness, not in my ability to grow something. And so to give first fruits is to say, I know it's all yours and I know you'll keep providing for me because that's who you are. And so Christians are those people. We are the ones who are to say, "We don't have compartmentalized lives. We don't go to God and say, "You have my Sundays, but not my browsing history. <laughs> you can have my my voice on a Sunday. you could have my time at serve, when I serve, but you cannot have my bank account and my free time. That's me. Christians don't do that. We see that we are a sacrifice, and that our lives are to be not just virtuous, but to live that be lived that way publicly, so that the world will see, what it is to trust God and that he can be trusted. And so that's another subversive way of living. And that's really subversive today because sacrificial living is not what we are trained to do. We're trained to go get ours. You know, go do what you have to do to secure your life and future. The third thing, we're told that in their mouth, no lie was found. And so this means that the people of God, the followers of the Lamb, have lives that are rooted in integrity and faith. So lies are rooted in fear, right? Um, I fear I won't get a job, the the job I'm interviewing for, and so I lie on my resume, or I fear I won't uh, that you know he or she won't love me if they know my past, and so I better just leave out some of those details. I better lie, or I fear that people at church may think I'm not a Christian if I admit that I'm struggling with a particular sin. So I better just keep it quiet, and so you see. Lies are always rooted in fear, but the people of God, the followers of the Lamb, the 144,000, they don't lie because they have no fears. Perfect love drives out fear. And so we don't need a job or a spouse or our perfect reputation at church to make us feel lovable because we already have the love of the only person whose love matters. And so we're to be a people whose lives are marked by truthfulness and, and integrity. No lies. Next one is, we are blameless. It says, for they were blameless. Now, this doesn't mean perfect. All through the book of Psalms, um, David refers to himself as blameless. Now, David isn't a fool. He doesn't think he's without sin. What he means is the same thing every Jew meant when he said that they they were blameless. They're saying, when I sin, I go through the proper steps of atoning for my sin. I confess it. I repent of the sin. And I trust that it is atoned for. And this is what it means to be blameless. It doesn't mean to be perfect. It means to respond to our sin with confession and then with faith that it has been put aside. And so to be blameless as Christians is to confess and repent of our sin, trusting Christ and his death to atone for it. To be blameless is to know we are sinners and that Jesus has died for our sins and to trust that we are not condemned for sins that are confessed and repented of. Now this is subversive because we don't, we're not a people who dwell on our sins. Followers of the Lamb mourn sin, but we confess it and repent it sincerely, and then we move on. And so, you know, in the world, uh, a 10-year-old tweet or a social media post might ruin your career, but not our joy. It should never ruin our joy as believers, because we know that although the world keeps a record of wrongs, Christ doesn't. Not for those who who have repented sincerely. And so we are blameless in the sense that we are right before God. And we repent of our sin knowing that we are sinners but that there is blood to cover it the next thing is they're depicted as standing beside a sea of glass you know is that interesting that we're people standing beside a sea of glass and that picks up on the imagery and the symbolism in chapter four when we see the sea there's a glassy sea around the throne before the throne of god and this is the symbolism of god having stilled the storms you know water in in ancient world but all through the bible as well as a sign of chaos and of trouble and so when this when the when the sea is storm is stilled before us it's a clear understanding and symbol that the troubles of life are something that we can now tread upon because of what christ did and this means then for us and our lives as followers that our lives can be marked By an abiding and incomprehensible, at least to the world, peace. That the world may lose its head, but we can have peace in the midst of it. And how subversive today is a calm, humble, and peaceful person? You know, when the world rages today against every offense, against everything, the church is called not to be. And the last thing we see, and there's much more, is this song that comes in chapter 15, 3, and 4. They sing this, it's called the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Now, what they sing, first of all, it's clear it's worship. So there is worship. We are to be a people marked by worship. But look at the content of the worship as well. Six times in those two verses, you or your is referenced, meaning that they sing not about themselves, but about God. The song they sing is completely God-focused and it's, it's heaped with with adjectives about God being great, amazing, almighty, he's king, glory, glorified, holy. He's to be worshipped. He is righteous. All of this, and the God is the song is God focused. And the, Lam, the the followers of the Lamb are so God occupied that they become self-forgetful. That they're so focused on God that they actually don't it's not like they're even intentionally trying to not think of themselves. They're just so consumed by God that they don't think of themselves as much and now this is the life of worship where to live so radically countercultural today because the world is so individualistic and self-centered everything is about me 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 and we see it slipping into the worship music of the church but we're called to be that radically different in the way we sing and whom of whom we sing now If we have this radical message and our lives be this radical, we have a problem because this life that we're expected to live is very daunting, isn't it? Sorry, that bird is back. And um, it's a daunting one. And who can be all these things, right? Who can be this perfect, this selfless, this blameless? Well, the power to not only live this sort of life, but oh my goodness, now there's a flock of geese flying overhead. So let's let them go by. I told you this would be a different kind of sermon. (laughs) So, how are we to do this? How are we to live this sort of a life? How are we to not just have the power to live this life, but also have the power to fail and yet keep striving? Because we will fail. How can we do this? And it's actually found in that bizarre section about the two harvests in chapter 14. Here we're seeing two harvests described. From This is from verse 14 to 20. And... The question we need to ask is, are these two different harvests or are they two sides of the same coin? So there's one big harvest of the wicked and the good at the end of all things. And that this is two different aspects of that harvest. Well, I think what we're looking at is two, two sides of the same coin. So let's look at the first harvest quickly. The first harvest we see is being, is performed by one who um, is like a son of man and he has this sickle to reap the grain on the earth. Now, who is this person, this being? Well, in chapter 1, verse 13, and throughout Revelation, only one person is referred to as being one like the Son of Man, and it's Jesus. And this is how John often speaks of him, of God, of Jesus in Revelation. So it's safe to say that Jesus has come. Jesus comes to do, to perform this first harvest. Now, when the earth is ripe for the harvest, we see that salvation and judgment are both the world the world is ripe for both but when jesus speaks of the harvest in john four thirty five, he speaks about salvation right he says the world is white with harvests we need workers to go out the fields are white um, and he's speaking about salvation there and besides that most of the times in the bible when somebody gra- uh, reaps a harvest of grain especially it's always referred to as something that they keep something that's important something that's precious the chaff might be burnt up But the harvest itself is kept. So I think in this first harvest, what you're seeing is that at the end, in the end of all things, a harvest will come. And on one hand, Christ will come and he'll take and gather for himself his own followers. But then we have this second harvest. This is a grape harvest. And this is carried out by another angel. I don't think there's a need to try to figure out who it is. It's enough to say it's another angel, another messenger and minister of God that comes to do this. And he's also using a sickle, which is interesting, right? Because you don't use a sickle to harvest grapes. We here in the Niagara region know that better than anybody. You harvest grapes usually by hand. Um, And so what's going on here? And I think the fact that a sickle is being used might help us to understand what sort of a harvest we're talking about. Because first, a sickle is consistent. It's used in the first harvest. It's nice to use it in the second just for consistency in the imagery. But the only reason I would use a sickle to hack down a a vineyard would be if I had no interest in the grapes and I was just going to throw them all into the fire and that seems to be what is going on here the second harvest occurs in the end and the harvest is of those who have rejected the lamb and accepted the beast and the result is that they are ripped down they are thrown into a wine press and trampled in fact we're told that this is the wine press of wrath right Um, And then the blood that flows out of this wine press is incredible. 1,600 stadia, or that's about 300 kilometers, uh, and it spreads out. And its height is up to the bridle of a horse, so, you know, four feet, five feet. Um, It's an incredible amount of blood comes out of it. And it's grisly. It's a brutal scene, and commentators note how brutal it is. But I think there's something, and not just I, there many, see, there's something more happening here. Do you note, and the same thing commentators note, that there's an inclusion of a phrase in verse 20 that says, and the wine press was trodden outside the city. Now, this phrase is loaded with meaning in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. There's no doubt that this second harvest is describing judgment on sinners. Okay, We know that. It's the wine press of the wrath of God. Um, but We read that the press is outside the city, and that draws our attention to the cross. Here's interesting, let's trace it very quickly. In Leviticus, we're told that when an animal is killed for a sin offering, that that animal is killed and then its body is burned and its ashes are thrown outside of the city. And the reason was because the remnants of sin should not be left in the city. The city should in no way have sin in it. In Moses' day, the unclean were taken out of the city in Numbers 5, um, and uh, those who disobeyed the law were executed and killed outside of the city. We see that not just in the book of Numbers, but in Luke and in Acts, when Stephen is killed, it's outside the city. So, in Hebrews as well, something even more incredible is going on. Hebrews 13, 11-13 says this, For the bodies of those animals, whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So, what are we seeing here? We're seeing there's judgment on sin at the end of all things. Sinners will be judged in the end, and this ought to strike terror and pity in us believers and fear in those who are not believers but we're also seeing that there is hope for the sinner that jesus was caught up as a sinner he was torn down by the sickle and he was trodden in the wine press of god's wrath for the sins that he did not commit and when he was trodden his blood ran out at an incredible rate for nearly 300 kilometers up to the bridle of the horse and why is this image there this grisly image there on one hand it says judgment for sin is terrible and true and it should drive us to repent but on the other hand the imagery is saying there's still hope for those who sin those of us who are followers of the lamb but struggle to live these perfect lives of purity have the blood of christ to trust in so it means we can fail and not be in despair because we remember that there is blood enough spilled at golgotha to atone for all of our sins past present and future and when we see that the lion became a lamb for our sake, we will fall at his feet and worship; we will be humbled by the depth of our sin, but also encouraged by the extent of his love; and this scene reminds us that when we succeed at drawing people into the kingdom, we should be humble, knowing that it is Christ succeeding through us, the message, the eternal Gospel of Christ and the angels; but we should also be kept from despair. When we stumble and when we fail because we know that christ anticipated our failure and he made provision for our frailty and so long as we trust jesus to be our salvation we can labor imperfectly as we grow in perfection and so we have the ability we have this subversive message from God, the subversive lives we are to lead, but also the subversive power that we can draw on to lead those lives and proclaim that message faithfully, so that we can endure, not giving in to the beast, so we can be numbered amongst that hundred and forty-four symbolic thousand, and we be with Christ when he returns. And that is something of what we're seeing here in chapter fourteen of Revelation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for uh, this encouragement. Thank you the, for the mission that we don't just call us to hunker down in a bunker and endure the, the the terror of the end of the last days. But you give us a mission in it because even amidst the judgment, you are trying to make a last call to those who are elected and who are called to be yours. Thank you for including us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the blood of your son. Lord, help us to be um, worthy messengers of your gospel, of your eternal gospel, not just of the the message that we proclaim with our mouths, but the one we live with our lives. Lord, you are holy and good and worthy of all of our praise. Let our songs be forever focused on you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.